You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, also recording from Washington, D.C. How's it going this week, Katie? Pretty good. December is upon us. 2021 is almost at a close. It's pretty hard to believe. Uh, but I think uh, we've got a lot to talk about as usual. Um, so actually, uh, Katie, I'm really excited for this episode because we are um, going to be visiting, I think, a part of the Asia Pacific that I don't know that I've covered directly on the podcast before, uh, which is the Solomon Islands. Uh, and um, unfortunately, what we're going to be talking about is not so happy. There have been uh, remarkable uh, protests and riots, uh, anti-Chinese violence. Uh, the reasons for that we will get into uh, because they are indeed connected to regional geopolitics and particularly cross-strait issues. Um, but Katie, why don't I turn it over to you just to just set this up for us and uh, tell our listeners a little bit about why we're talking about the Solomon Islands and what exactly has been happening there uh, since really the final week of November or so. Yeah, so um, in late November, it was November 24th, uh, a group of protesters marched on the capital of Aniara, the capital of Solomon Islands, and they were they had a couple of demands, primarily the resignation of Prime Minister Manasseh Sokavare, uh, in part over his administration's 2019 decision to switch diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China. Uh, the protests were initially peaceful. Things got a bit out of hand. The Prime Minister wouldn't meet with the protesters. Things got a bit violent. Um, the government declared a lockdown of the capital, um, but the protesters returned the next two days. Um, a number of buildings were burned down, including a police station, a leaf hut near the parliament house. Uh, Chinese-owned businesses were burned and looted. Um, authorities later found three people dead inside one of the burned buildings. So that's, um, you know, there was uh, people who died in this violence. Um, police used tear gas, rubber bullets. It was it was really pretty chaotic for those, those three days. Um, Another interesting feature of, of what happened is Australian police and defense personnel were deployed to Solomon Islands at the request of the government. Um, as it stands now, I think there's around 100 Australians and then additional peacekeepers mm -hmm. from New Zealand, Fiji, Papua New, Papua New Guinea. Um, so it's sort of these protests evolved into uh, a shocking bit of, of violence, um, which I think some of our listeners probably know, but maybe not everybody's aware. Uh, Solomon Islands went through a period of political unrest uh, in the late 2000, the late 1990s into the early 2000s. Um, and so there's sort of uh, brings up memories that are fairly fresh um, when it comes to violence, but but maybe a little distant for some of our readers mm -hmm. or listeners. So I think I think what's, you know, really notable about this is uh, so first of all, I mean, internal violence over Chinese foreign policy is not an alien concept in the Asia Pacific region. These kinds of protests have happened uh, in in Vietnam after the 2014 incident in the South China Sea involving uh, oil drilling, uh, oil drilling uh, activities by Chinese uh, state-owned enterprises. But what is new here is the nature of the dispute really coming as uh, after a little bit of a lag following the Solomon Islands change of diplomatic relations uh, from Taiwan to China. Uh, and as, it's actually a very timely uh, moment for us to be even having this discussion, given that uh, today, uh, December 9th, um, Nicaragua announced uh, that it was also going to shift uh, recognition. So this is, you know, part of the story of the People's Republic of China uh, continuing to isolate Taiwan under uh, the presidency of Tsai Ing-wen. The uh, diplomatic truce that once existed between Taiwan and China when the KMT uh, was in charge uh, came crumbling down after the 2016 elections when the Gambia, uh, even before um, Tsai's uh, inauguration, 
um, changed uh, its affiliation uh, to to the PRC. So after Nicaragua, actually, Taiwan just has 13 states that recognize it and the Vatican, so 14 total. Um, but anyways, I mean, retreating back to the Solomon Islands a little bit. Uh, so I, I think it also helps to talk a little bit, Katie, about the uh, intra or inter-island competition in the Solomon Islands. And, you know, I'm, I'm very far from anywhere even close to having any expertise about the Solomon Islands domestic politics. But, I mean, based on the reading that I've done, I mean, it, it, this is really a story of sort of governance deficits, perceived lack of autonomy for um, Malaita Island, where um, the perception of proximity to Taiwan has been closer. In fact, I understand that Taiwan has actually been extending economic assistance to them, uh, even after Solomon Islands changed diplomatic relations. So what does this tell you more broadly about, you know, how, uh, I mean, what is one of the lessons we might take away here for um, at least uh, how we think about the Taiwan-China situation? Because uh, China is continuing to crack down on countries that have diplomatic relations, and Taiwan has built significant economic relationships with many of these countries. And so is this really a unique it, like, are the circumstances in the Solomon Islands unique, given these intra-island intra disputes and, and politics and corruption and so forth? Or is this something that we might expect to see elsewhere? I mean, I, th I think to a degree, you can expect to see this elsewhere. Um, the And I, I can explain a little bit of the inter-island issues, but the geopolitical question of recognizing Taiwan or China kind of dovetails with existing domestic fault lines. And so while they may differ from country to country. Every country will have its own particularly sometimes toxic mix of um, grievances that the Taiwan-China question can kind of map onto. And so in the case of the Solomon Islands, Malaita province, the largest island of which is Malaita, is the most populous province. Um, it's north of uh, Guadalcanal, which is where Aniara is located. So the capital is not on the most populated island. That's sort of point number one. And over the last several decades um, into the last last um, century, uh, people migrated from Malaita to Aniara because capital cities tend to be the, the hot zone of development and, and economic opportunity. And so there were large communities of Malaitans who are based you know, on the island of Guadalcanal, but but you know, see themselves as part of this this um, other community. So that you kind of end up with this um, the opportunity for greater tension. We saw that in the violence in the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, which was between Malite Malitans, um, and if I'm pronouncing that wrong, uh, somebody can correct me and forgive me later. I'm trying. <laughs> um, the, you know, the the previous violence was was between people who had come from out off of Guadalcanal onto Guadalcanal with locals there. Um, and so the complaint, the protesters um, in the most recent uh, protests were from Malaita. They identified with Malaita. And, you know, some of their complaints are, you know, a lack of development in their region and corruption, inequality. And so um, when the Sogavari government decided to switch recognition from Taiwan to China, Malaita's Premier Daniel Suidani, who at the time was newly elected in, in the province, um, vocally opposed that decision, um, has continued to uh, engage in relations with Taiwan. This past summer, he actually got medical treatment in Taiwan. It was a big, that was a, was a bit of a, a controversy there, um, but has continued to get assistance from Taiwan and refused assistance from China that China has offered to the rest of the Solomon Islands. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think an interesting point to insert here is the United States, which in 2020 
pledged 35 million in aid to Malaita province. It was part of a larger Pacific package, but it was, you know, it was it was quite a large jump in number for a specific province in the Solomon Islands. And many viewed that as the United States kind of leaning on 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 the the, the Taiwan question. Um, so I'm, I'm curious sort of what your what your take on, you know, is can this happen elsewhere in this way? Because from my view, it can, you know, every country has its own sort of fault lines. And if somehow the Taiwan China question gets embedded into pre-existing domestic uh, controversies, then you have the opportunity for this sort of geopolitical flare up that nonetheless has very real domestic roots um, and complaints behind it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I kind of struggle with that because, you know, one could imagine a situation in which maybe Sogavare sort of could have seen this coming to some extent, right? Recognizing the the complexity of the Solomon Islands pre-existing relations with Taiwan and what will be lost with the change over to China. So, and, and you know, frankly, I mean, I, I just don't know enough about the similar uh, circumstances that might exist with Taiwan's remaining diplomatic partners, for instance, mm. where, I mean, really, it's been quite a simple story so far. Uh, as China has been poaching Taiwan's diplomatic allies, it's really been a matter of, you know, do you value your relationship with Taiwan or do you value all of this economic benefit that China is going to give you? China's made it a very easy choice for many of these countries to switch over. And so right now, I think the most um, economically significant country uh, that Taiwan maintains uh, a diplomatic partnership with is Paraguay. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and the Vatican, of course, uh, has its own significance. Uh, and that's a separate set of issues there. Um, you know, just couple other issues that I found interesting with this, and uh, and then we can um, maybe talk a little bit about the Summit for Democracy, which is uh, ongoing as we record this. Um, but so the first thing I found interesting is that Sogavari sort of retreated uh, into this narrative uh, around uh, color revolutions and sort of the foreign hand stirring up trouble uh, in the Solomon Islands, which is really interesting to me because, I mean, first of all, that I think dovetails very nicely with uh, a narrative that the Chinese foreign ministry would prefer in, in, in these kinds of situations where there are anti-Chinese protests. Uh, this is something that China repeatedly comes back to. So I found it interesting that this was sort of uh, one of the uh, internal narratives from the government. The other parts that fascinates, uh, that fascinates me is, uh, you know, as you described, Katie, I mean, Australia, which is sort of the primary net security provider uh, in the South Pacific, maintains a very important relationship with all of these small island states, um, and they view Australia, you know, they have difficult relations with Australia often, but Australia has is the center of gravity. And so it's interesting to me to see the Morrison government, you know, stepping in to stabilize this situation, um, but to support a country that is, you know, directly abandoning Taiwan in favor of China at the time when the debate on cross-strait issues in Canberra is exactly the opposite, where support for Taiwan is growing and criticism of China is growing. I mean, obviously, I think this highlights the some of the tensions, right? Australia, I think, has to look out for its neighborhood uh, first in some ways, and so that I think uh, also also strikes me. I'm not I'm not sure if uh, you know you have uh, you have thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I think I would just add that the add the latest sort of development in this, which is that the opposition in the Solomon Islands Parliament, led by Matthew Wale. Um, put forward a no confidence vote, which Sogavari uh, survived on December 6th. Um, and so I think from the Australian perspective, they, you know, responded to a democratically elected government uh, that requested assistance with a fairly light hand. You know, it was only it was only 100 troops and they, they were very, I think, light with with what they did. So it was more of a, OK, we we don't want you to be rioting, but you can have this debate. 
Um, and and while I sort of set, said as much, you know, Sogavari in, in the parliament was apparently very um, bombastic. Um, and while he was very, very reserved and, and didn't really want to do the no confidence vote from my reading of it, um, because, you know, didn't want to add fuel to this this fire. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I think there is there is a, a desire in the Solomon Islands to more fully discuss this. There, there's a sense that, you know, the decision to switch was kind of a foregone conclusion and, and the process was not really open. Um, and I, and I think that, that this, um, you know, is, is something that allowed Australia to sort of help calm things down. Australia had been part of the, had been leading the peacekeeping force that, that, um, was necessary to end the prior conflict in the Solomon Islands. So it's, it's not ignorant of the situation or the, the dynamics, which I think, um, other external powers might not be, but you're right. The the narrative of um, somebody else is stirring this up is is a very familiar one, and sometimes it's true, and sometimes it's not. Um, I, I think it's very clear there are domestic roots for this um, conflict, even if um, obviously we're on a geopolitics podcast, so we're going to talk about the geopolitics uh, aspect. I, I think we can't lose sight of the fact that you know there are domestic questions, and so there there should be domestic solutions to that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's switch gears a little bit uh, and talk about the controversial uh, Summit for Democracy. Uh, that uh, So we're recording this on December 10th. Uh, the summit is in its second day. It began on Thursday in virtual meetings. Uh, so the United States is convening 110 nations, uh, which, uh, you know, there are strong debates about whether all 110 of those nations are indeed democracies. Um to uh, discuss ways to, broadly speaking, deal with authoritarianism, corruption, uh, better improve their human rights situation. Um, and so it's not difficult for me to see why the Biden administration thinks this is a good idea, right? Uh, Biden, uh, in his inaugural address and everything he said running for president, uh, called for the U.S. to recenter values at the center of American foreign policy. But... It's been difficult to really find folks um, outside of government, especially commenting on this summit that have really, I mean, gone all in on saying that this is a good idea. Uh, right. I mean, so one of the narratives has been that, you know, well, the U.S., you know, after everything that happened on January 6th here in Washington and uh, over the last four years, more generally, really doesn't have a leg to stand on when it comes to uh, show the world, you know, what it means to be a great democracy anymore. And, you know, to that. The administration basically, you know, does point out that this is not the U.S. sort of lecturing 110 countries about how to be a democracy. This is not sort of the U.S. holding a democracy 101 lecture, and that's fine. But I mean, on on some level, it's it's a forum that's meant to, you know, be a be an opportunity for these countries to share best practices. So, I mean, the big criticism, Katie, and I'd, I'd welcome maybe responses to you know, each and e each of these from you is, okay, so first of all, the invite list is a mess. Uh, nearly, I mean, if you look at sort of independent assessments from groups like Freedom House, which rate um, uh, democracy uh, and, and uh, generally the openness of societies, then um, many of the countries that have been invited uh, should not have been. And I think this is partly a function of how the U.S. government bureaucracy handles these kinds of summit invitations. There's no general criteria it's really about country per country and a lot of it depends on geopolitics and the, how much the u.s values the relationship right i think it explains why turkey was invited but pakistan was invited for instance well the pakistan chose not to go and we can get into that in a minute say pakistan didn't come <laughs> yeah uh and so you know i already talked about the u.s having its own issues with democracy it also i think conflates democracy with governance outcomes which is interesting because i think that's a big part of the critique that 
you know, you'll sometimes hear about democracy more broadly from not only countries like China, but even even a country like Singapore, right? I mean, governance outcomes are often portrayed as being more important than the process. And China has actually been criticizing the summit by pointing to how democratic China is. But really, when China talks about democracy, I think it's talking about governance outcomes. So it's interesting that that distinction, I think, could have been much more helpful uh, in sort of framing the summit. And so my personal view is also that this fuels ideological competition in a way that might be counterproductive, right? The Biden administration just had a meeting with Xi Jinping and the messaging from Jake Sullivan and the president and everybody afterwards was that, you know, we're look, we're not in an ideological Cold War. This is absolutely not a Cold War. And then two weeks later, you know, you're having this very Cold War style ideological, you know, democracy party where Russia and China aren't invited. And so that strikes me as a little bit misguided. And then the corollary to that is that I think... And this is a bigger question, maybe, and maybe we should do a whole episode on this, is that I think at the core of a lot of the misgivings that Russia and China have about U.S. foreign policy towards them is they fear, either correctly or incorrectly, we can debate this, that the United States actually seeks fundamentally to change their regimes, uh, right? And so there isn't an acceptance of the legitimacy of the Chinese political system in the United States. And so this democracy summit, and partly I think the sharp Chinese reaction, uh, is partly due to that. I think it's also because you know Taiwan was invited. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot here, Katie. I mean, so what's your what's your take on the democracy summit, and and to some of these critiques I laid out? I mean, I think I'm I'm going to reserve judgment until it's it's over. Um, obviously, the holding of it was a campaign promise. And so I think we have to not lose sight of the fact that US presidents, like all leaders, have multiple audiences that they're playing to. And so I think the holding of this is something that Biden's domestic audience wants. That They're not particularly interested maybe in the details of that, but it is it is something that is, is you know, the, the health of American democracy is a hot topic to talk about right now for obvious reasons. Um, and so I think I think that's maybe part of that motivation that does not for all that seem to make sense from the geopolitical angle, but it does from a domestic angle. Um, the invite list is list is is, is interesting. Um, I, I think part of it is some aspirational. Um, so countries that are technically democratic but have some problems, um, which can is a you know a phrase that I think could be used to describe a lot of democracies. Um, and and so the idea that you know you don't have to be perfect in your uh, iteration of democracy, but you do have to share the values and the the directionality, perhaps, is is a better way to put that, which, um, you know, would explain why you might leave out a country like Turkey. Um, when you look at their democracy and the directionality of it, it's it's not going in the better direction. Um, and, and, and maybe, um, you know, Pakistan, I think, becomes a, a unique example because of the geopolitics. You know, if you invite India, which also has, is a democracy, but not always a perfect one. Um, none, of, none of them are, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. But on the other hand, you know, there were a lot of countries that also call themselves democracies that were not invited. All of Central Asia was left out. I'm not gonna not gonna debate that because I think that was a fine fine thing to leave leave them out. Russia also says it's democracy. Uh, I, I think the Chinese reaction is was super interesting. It kind of boiled down to like, we're a democracy. We're a democracy that actually works, um, which I think is. In just super interesting. I, um, I I had a chat with our editor in chief Shannon about it this week um, because she's a China expert, and I wanted wanted her her input on that. Um, and it, you know, I, I think one of the interesting things that I've been trying to sort out is, you know, 
China saying that it is a democracy is almost, and I want to get your, your read on this, it kind of reads to me like an acceptance of the idea that that the word democracy and democracy as a form of governance, however we define that, which is obviously the important part, is is the ideal. So it's 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 not a like there our system is better. It's a our system is the better version of the system you said that we should have, which I think is a, mm -hmm. an interesting ideological switch from saying, you know, uh, here at the end of history, it's it's not democracies that are that is the um, top form of government, but but that seems to be the the communication. Now it's a rewriting of definition. I'm definitely um, the famous quote from Princess Bride entered my mind this week. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means when it comes to to democracy, because there's definitely a difference in opinion, shall we say, as to what actually constitutes a democracy. But I think it's interesting that that's that's the word we're sticking with. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really interesting point. I mean, you know, to that, I would just say, I think, um, you know, Marxist Leninist countries tend to use the word democracy uh, in a particular way, right? You have the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, right? North Korea, and the People's Republic of China. I think I think the Chinese use of that word, again, I think it relates to governance outcomes, and it relates to that very paternalistic relationship that the Communist Party mm. perceives to have with the Chinese people, that they basically say, you know, look, we're we're taking care of our people, we're making them wealthier, we're making them safer, and so that is what democracy really, you know, means to us. And then actually the internal narrative, you know, I mean, China puts out their report on human rights in the United States annually. They uh, run stories about, I mean, you know, look at these so-called liberal democracies, look at all, you know, the crime in their cities, the garbage on their streets and so forth. Isn't it nicer to live in, you know, China? And so that is, I think, uh, sort of the ideological context uh, for a lot of this. But it is, I mean, I think everybody, like, you know, they accept the frame that this is an aspiration that is positive. But then they see the U.S. excluding, um, like, directly excluding China, Russia, and a number of other countries as sort of a bald-faced attempt at sort of geopolitically mm -hmm. creating a club that ideologically excludes uh, China. So it's it's interesting. And I think... I, I, and I think the point you raised about the campaign promise and the domestic issues is 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 a very important one. Uh, I think uh, you know it's a little bit of a shame that um, you know there wasn't, I guess, a broader consideration of the policy upsides to this because I mean, really, mm -hmm. I think most folks who work on this um, set of issues from a foreign policy geopolitics perspective, uh, I mean, you know, generally, and, and you know, look, I mean, the, it's not over yet, and the idea with this process is that they will reconvene next year, and countries are making certain promises on anti-corruption and other issues that they'll come back and revisit and see how if things have changed. And so it is possible that maybe we're being unfair and that this could lead to a broader process of change in at least some countries. So, um, you know, I think uh, anyways, it's 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 certainly going to be, I think, an interesting uh, event going into uh, next year. I think what's also interesting within in the U.S.-China context is that, you know, with the upcoming party Congress in China and the Olympics and this uh, Biden-Xi meeting that we spoke about last time, it like there's this sense that the U.S. China relationship is heading into this at least this one year period, maybe even into the midterm elections here where things are just going to be managed, that nobody's really going to stir the boat. And so the reaction from China to the democracy summit in that context has been really fascinating to me as well. Um, any any final thoughts on all that, Katie? Um, I, I think my only sort of final thought I want to leave people with is the the idea that, you know, it's 
autocracies have a little bit of a, an easier time in defending themselves because it's harder to cover them as to what's happening. I, I think the United States obviously gets a lot of well-deserved criticism for a lot of the problems that we have here and that we've always had and we refuse to address adequately. Um, but there's a reason we're able to report on those things. And, and that is not true in countries like Russia and China in the sense that, you know, they can say, hey, United States, you have a racism problem. Um, but China continues to deny everything about Xinjiang. So it's sort of, you know, the pot calling the kettle black sometimes, maybe. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think uh, there was a statement from the Chinese foreign ministry today uh, that, you know, calling on the U.S., U.K., Australia and Canada to do soul searching, which, I mean, to the credit of those four countries, I mean, sure, I mean, domestic politics and certain domestic political actors might not do that soul searching, but generally that process does happen. And so, uh, you know, it is it is this kind of very much. I think, could all use kind. some soul searching. I agree with that. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, a very philosophical note uh, to pivot away from. Um, and so anyways, Katie, before we end, I did want to talk a little bit about the latest issue of The Diplomat magazine. Uh, so very timely commemorating the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Soviet Union, which had significant ripple effects uh, around the entirety of the Asia Pacific region. Uh, so let me turn it over to you to, to tell our listeners a little bit about what's in the latest magazine and, and why they should uh, read it. Yeah, so the, the cover story of our latest magazine um, is pegged to the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, which became official in December 1991. Um, and But instead of looking at the Soviet Union itself and, you know, the constituent republics, uh, we decided to ask the question of, you know, what is the legacy of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union's collapse for some of the major countries in Asia? And so we got a group of really excellent authors to uh, tell us about that legacy in China, India, Japan, uh, Korea, and Vietnam. And so it's it's a really good um, sort of full cast cover uh, that that pokes through, you know, the Soviet Union has been gone 30 years, um, but gone, gone but not forgotten, I think is the best way to, way, way to put that. Um, and the, certainly its legacies live on in the bilateral relationships these countries have with Russia, um, but also in, in how some of the domestic politics evolved in those countries. I think China is probably the best example of that, um, where the, the collapse of the Soviet Union was a, a big red flag for the Chinese Communist Party. And, and I think it, it took corrective actions to avoid you know, avoiding the Soviet Union's fate. Um, and so you should definitely pick up the issue. Uh, you can download our app, which is slick and easy to use. Um, and we uh, certainly uh, send me any feedback on, on the issue. There's a lot of other great stuff in the issue, but the, that cover has been in my head for a while. So I'm really glad to see it finally come out. Well, fantastic. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I'll leave a note uh, or a link rather in the show notes uh, to that issue. So uh, if you if you found uh, Katie's pitch interesting, definitely do pick it up. Um, so Katie, I think we'll uh, leave it there for this week and, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be back at least once before uh, the end of the year to maybe reflect on the year gone by and the pandemic and, uh, and, uh, other issues, uh, relevant to Asia geopolitics. But in the meantime, thanks a lot for joining me, Katie. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. Right. And, uh, for our listeners, if you liked what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. It really uh, helps get the word out about the show and helps us expand our listenership. And finally, if you have suggestions for future episodes, feel free to contact either me or Katie. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back soon with more.